I take for my text this morning the 11th verse of the first chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Please pray with me. God of mystery, who is so often veiled from our sight, reveal your presence this morning in our interpretation of this text, that our souls may be enriched and inspired to new life and action. Amen. I know you've been looking forward to this all year. Happy Ascension Day. Well, actually, today is not technically Ascension Day. Ascension Day properly was last Thursday. But this is Ascension Day observed, the Sunday closest to the Ascension. Did you celebrate last Thursday by any chance? Big day, right? See a lot of somewhat blank stares out there. You mean you didn't celebrate the Ascension? What kind of liturgical Christians are we? This day is a bit unusual, I must admit, for low church Protestants. When I was talking to MJ about today, he said he had never heard a sermon on the Ascension before, which I find remarkable. Are there any other Ascension Day virgins out there? (laughs) My own first experience of Ascension Day was in 2003. That year, I had the privilege of teaching at Eton College in England. Eton College is a Church of England high school, the type of place that is very liturgical, that celebrates all the Christian holidays. So when someone told me about Ascension Day then, I was curious to see what it was all about. The one problem was, it required me to wake up at 5 a.m. Now, for those of you who know me, you know that I am not a morning person. I don't tend to wake up before dawn. For me, that requires an alarm clock, or usually four or five. But on that day in 2003, I dutifully set my alarms, woke up, and donned my full Eton College penguin-style attire. Starched white shirt with detachable wing collar, white bow tie, black waistcoat and jacket, morning suit trousers, that is gray dress pants with thin black stripes, and my English-style bachelor's degree academic robe. Appropriately dressed, I wandered my way down the cobblestone street of Common Lane to the Eaton Chapel. The Eaton Chapel was originally intended to be a full-sized Gothic cathedral. Built in the the mid-15th century by King Henry VI, the construction was halted due to lack of funds. The king had found himself in a struggle for the throne known as the War of the Roses. So even though the nave of the Eaton Chapel is a fraction of what it was intended, the chapel itself rises well over 100 feet in the air. Those of us who were there for the service filed into the chapel and made our way to the small circular staircase hidden in the northeast corner. Then we began to climb. In single file, we walked up several hundred small, well-worn steps to the roof. Once there, we squeezed into the narrow space between the edge of the outer wall and the sloping roof behind. With us was the whole choir, dressed in red cassocks and white surplices, and a collection of seniors dressed in rugby attire for the, for the Ascension Day edition of the wall game, a long-standing Eton tradition. Shoulder to shoulder with the other worshipers, we raised our voices in song and prayer as the sun dawned 
over the breathtaking English countryside. I have to say, it's one of the most miraculous scenes I've ever witnessed. There's something about the light at dawn. It doesn't have any glare as it illumines the world. As such, the colors have a vividness to them that's unlike any other time of day. Ascension Day celebrates that morning on the Mount of Olives, 40 days after Easter, when the resurrected Christ lifted off the ground and floated into heaven. There the disciples were as the dawn light bathed the temple in Jerusalem, which stood below them across the Kidron Valley, and watched as their Savior disappeared into a cloud. I can see why they had that tradition at Eden. We were trying to relive that experience. Instead of the Mount of Olives, we were high up on the chapel roof. Yet as picturesque as the scene was, as memorable as it was, I can't help but think that it is a horrible way to celebrate the Ascension. When I read through our text this morning, I don't hear an angelic choral, an angelic choral voices in cassocks and surplices, and I don't see boys dressed in rugby attire. I don't think the disciples were particularly entranced by the great lighting of dawn. If I had been there, if I had been one of the disciples, while Jesus levitated heavenwards, I would have wrestled with the question, Think about it. One day, early in the morning, 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus wakes up his disciples. Without saying anything, he leads them to the Mount of Olives. The disciples know their Bible. They know that Zechariah had prophesied that the great victory of God would be initiated on the Mount of Olives. As they stood and watched from the Mount of Olives, they remembered the incredible series of events of the previous months the drama of Passion Week, the pain of the crucifixion, and the great glory of the resurrection. Now, this triumphant march to the Mount of Olives. Imagine what they must have been thinking. You can almost feel their excitement build as the light slowly bathes the surrounding area. The logic of it is irresistible. This is the time. This is the time when all will be put right by God. Bye-bye Roman overlords. Bye-bye Jewish collaborators with oppressive Roman Roman rule. An end to poverty and suffering. The disciples must have been floating with joy, true joy, born of the transformative experience and hope of the resurrection. Finally, they can't hold their excitement in any longer. One of them asks what all of them were thinking. Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? The anticipation is so great that their nerves make their bodies quiver. And then Jesus gives his response. It's not up for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. What? They look at each other quizzically. What does that even mean? While they're standing there confused, Jesus is lifted up into a cloud and he's gone, just like that. Talk about one of the greatest letdowns in Christian history. This was supposed to be the moment when everything would be transformed. This was going to be it, what they had waited their whole lives for. And instead, they're told to go chill out in Jerusalem and wait. But why? Why, why, why? You can feel their frustration, their disappointment. I don't know how long the disciples stood there after Jesus was gone on that morning of the ascension. I don't know if they exchanged any words or not. They didn't have any choice. They would have to stay there and wait. 
I don't know about you, but I can understand the disciples at that moment. Why? Why, if we have the great news of the resurrection, do we have to wait in the world that we have now? Why can't the reign of God, of justice, begin now? If the resurrected Jesus had been here, if we had this great news, why the delay for this final consummation? I look around the world and my heart breaks for the suffering and injustices that I see. Just this past week, the Louisiana State Legislature announced that it would, ha- that it would have to cut Medicaid payments to some 37,000 recipients. Most of those recipients are elderly people living in nursing homes. These are people who worked their whole lives but were not able to save enough money for retirement. Left with little other than their Social Security payments, they depend on Medicaid to pay for their nursing care. And now, thousands of these people face potential eviction from their nursing homes. I'm not sure if you've spent any time in Medicaid-funding nursing homes. They are not luxurious facilities, and the employees tend to be underpaid and the facilities understaffed. And yet, in the wealthiest country in the world, these elderly people could face eviction from these modest facilities because Louisiana created huge budget deficits, huge budget deficits under the relentless tax cutting of Bobby Jindal. I think of the needless suffering that these people will face, old, tired, sick, and on their own, and I can't help but ask, where are you, Jesus? And why did you go away? We could turn our attention to our criminal justice system. A system with too many backlogs of cases where people have to wait for months on end to resolve their uncertainty. Bail bonds lock poor people in debt traps while they wait. We continue to privatize our overcrowded prisons, which lead to bad conditions and abusive prisoners. We lock up far too many people. And we create systems where people end up back in prison. It's a broken system. Both political parties agree on that. And yet, people still suffer. Here in Houston, the Houston Independent School District faces a crisis of its own making. Chronically failing schools, schools that we knew were failing, might be handed over to a charter school network that has virtually zero track record of success and that is run by people with links to former HISD trustees. Year after year, we underserved kids in need in this city. And who suffers from this mismanagement? Children. Children who live in some of our poorest neighborhoods. Why do we have to live with this, Jesus? Overseas, you think of the people of Syria, caught under the brutal and oppressive rule of the Assad family, elements of Syrian Syrian society finally revolted. Due to outside forces, complicated forces, the civil war keeps going, leaving millions of refugees and the country destroyed. Millions of innocent Syrian civilians who have have had the misfortune of being born into that country, have lost their homes, their livelihoods, their futures. They are crammed into camps or lost on the streets of some European cities. The U.S., meanwhile, has shut off its borders from any refugees, no matter how well vetted, even though American arms and intervention has helped prolong the conflict. Where are you, Jesus? Why did you have to ascend into heaven and leave us behind with all of this? And there are our own personal struggles. We wrestle with with unhealthy habits we try and break. We leave commitments undone. We do the best we can, but so often we are left criticizing what we do because we know we could have done better, should have done better. Where is the Jesus who could deliver us from that? I stand there with the disciples, wondering, asking, pleading even with God. Why? Why did he have to ascend? Why are we forced to live in this, in this suffering if we are in a post-resurrection world? 
There are others, authors, those authors that you keep coming back to, those whose ideas you can't shake, disturb you. Their writings make you consider things about the world in new and different ways. One such author for me is G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton lived in England in the early part of the 20th century. He was incredibly prolific and one of the best-known wits of his time. Chesterton was also a devout Christian, and he wrote about Christianity in playful and profound ways. One of my favorite books is his novel, The Man Who Was Thursday, written in 1908. The main character, Gabriel Syme, finds himself at a bohemian garden party. One of the guests is a poet who waxes eloquent about anarchism. Syme challenges this dilettante intellectual about his views. Syme himself had been affected personally by an anarchist bomb. When pressed, the poet reveals that he's actually part of a grand anarchist organization. Syme decides to play along to get to the bottom of it. In the midst of his investigation, he is contacted by the police to be an undercover agent to search out the truth of the conspiracy. As the novel nears its climax, Syme is improbably elected to the Grand Council of Anarchists, a group where each member is given a code name after a day of the week. In the final twist of the novel, Syme discovers that each member of the Grand Council is actually an undercover agent, just like himself. The novel ends with a fantastical reveal and a theological twist. As much as the world appears to be in the grips of anarchist forces, forces that push for chaos and suffering, behind them all, God lurks and undergirds true order and justice. But you can only discover the importance and real presence of God by embracing the chaos of the world and discovering the order that lies at a deeper level underneath it. Chesterton's point is reminiscent of a poem by Reed Whittemore entitled Psalm. The Lord feeds some of his prisoners better than others. It could be said of him that he is not a just God, but an indifferent God. That he is not to be trusted to reward the righteous and punish the unscrupulous. That he maketh the poor poorer, but is otherwise undependable. It could be said of him that it is his school of the germane that produced the congressional record. That it's his vision of justice that gave us cost accounting. It could be said of him that though we walk with him all the days of our life, we will never fathom him because he's empty. These are dark images of our Lord that make it seem needful for us to pray not unto him, but ourselves. But when we do that, we find we are truly lost. And we rush back into the safer fold, impressed by his care for us. At the close of The Man Who Was Thursday, as Syme wrestles with the argument that God only appears in the ambiguities of life, Syme asks why. Why is that necessary? Why must we seem abandoned by God and only in the midst of suffering find God? Then he is enveloped in a cloud and hears a whispering voice, Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of? It's that haunting line of Jesus. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of? Chesterton's point is clear. True holiness, true humanity can only be discovered in the struggle for righteousness in this life. Because that is the example that Jesus gave us. It is in that struggle, in that chaos, in that suffering, the same suffering that Jesus endured, where God emerges and where we find the deepest truths about life. 
If all were good, if there were no temptations towards anarchy and destruction, we would be living in a blissful world, a blissful world where we would discover nothing. The Garden of Eden is not, in fact, the life we seek, but an illusion that is sheltered and void of the truths of life. This life is a testing, a trial, an experience that calls on our deepest reserves to find out what the true meaning of life is. But we have to seek it. We have to struggle for it. We have to, like Simon, investigate, investigate the origins of anarchy. We have to take up the cross and be the church militant in the world. That is the calling of Christians, and that is why Jesus leaves us here, to do the work of God. That's the message of the ascension. In God's own time, things will be disclosed for what they are. The great reveal will happen in this life or the next. But in between, during the in-between times in which we find ourselves, we are called to be the church in the world for the world. When I related the story of the ascension earlier in the sermon, there was a key line that I skipped over in the text a line that's tremendously important if we're to understand this passage. The resurrected Jesus' last words to his disciples are, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Jesus is leaving the work for us to accomplish. We are to be the witnesses of his message and his work in the world. We are to spread that message throughout the whole world, from one end of it to the other. Yet Jesus does not leave us to do the work alone. He promises that the Holy Spirit will be there to guide us, to comfort us, support us in the work. We come to church here on Sunday morning to be reminded of that spirit. We open up our very souls to hear its calling. The spirit is leading us. You see the suffering in the world? You see those in need? What does the Holy Spirit say to you in response? Do something. Do something while you wait for Jesus. Do something to make the world a better place. Do something to heal the brokenhearted. Congregational churches function in an unusual way. Congregational churches are not top-down organizations. Even though we have a governing structure, the leaders of the congregation are all of you. One thing in a congregational governance that can be frustrating is that we expect the boards to take care of all the work. We want the mission board or the church and society board to lead us and to do all the witnessing of the Holy Spirit for us. And we can wait for their leadership. We can wait for their deliberations and hope they inspire us. But that's not what, real, that's not what they're really set up to do. The boards are set up to deliberate and guide. They're there to make sure we have some coherence in our work. But the energy, the passion, the drive, the inspiration must come from the congregation. Congregational churches work best when the members, when you, you there in the pews, are motivated to do something, to help change the world, to be the church militant. What disturbs you about the suffering in the world? What keeps you up at night? What are the problems that God shows you in those solitary times when you hear the voice of God speaking? Whatever they are, whatever the Holy Spirit is nudging you to do, I say, go do it. Organize something. Find an organization that works on the problems that you care about. Once you find what God is calling you to do, then go to the mission board or the CIS board for support. They'll help you get the message out to the rest of us. But you must, but, but you must let your passion, not theirs, be the motivating force for us all. God, Jesus, wants you 
to spread the word of God to this world. It's up to you. It's your calling. We here need your passion. We need the Holy Spirit that's firing you up. Fire us up. Here's the miracle of it. Here's the miracle of the ascension. When you do listen to the Holy Spirit, when you heed the words of Jesus to spread the message to the world, a remarkable thing can happen. It's miraculous, really. When you do do that, when Jesus himself shows up, Jesus returns. He's there beside you as you do the work of God. Jesus has ascended to heaven to wait upon the Holy Spirit leading you to act. And when you do, what has gone up into, into heaven in the cloud returns. And you see the face of Jesus himself and those whom you help. This, is the message of the, this message of the ascension is far more profound than any number of hymns sung on top of the Eaton Chapel. No light on the countryside or heavenly choral voices can bring Jesus' very presence back to earth. But you, you and your efforts, guided by the Holy Spirit, they do it. They make it happen. I say to you, lead us. I say to you, lead us, and we will follow. We will all meet Jesus together.